Hello, everyone. My name is Lawrence. Hi, Lawrence. Let me tell you about our city. It is the best city in Washington State, in my opinion. It is located on I-5, halfway between Seattle and Portland. We are in Lewis County, yeah. right near the confluence of the Chehalis and Skookumchuck Rivers. Lawrence of Centralia. We are generally conservative and we lean Republican. Will not be presented at this time. The great Sonics basketball player Detlef Schrempf went to high school here. In order to bring you this special podcast. Man, could that guy dribble. It's almost live. Still alive. It's alive! A limited podcast series about Northwest Television's legendary TV sketch comedy show. An amazing phenomenon. Featuring intimate conversations with the writers, performers, creators. Rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, bushwhackers, hornswagglers, horse thieves, bulldogs, train robbers, bank robbers, ass kickers, shit kickers, and messages. Your host was one of them. I think I would remember a thing like that. Pat Cashman. What's the matter with you? Almost live. This <laughs> is just a real nice surprise. Still alive. Just a real nice surprise. Almost live may have been a cash cow for some, but most of us never even got close to that udder. For their part, King TV got a great return on investment, and so did Comedy Central and a couple of syndication companies. But the people who actually created the show each week did it for a lot of love and a little of money. A South Kitsap school teacher named Tom Juvik was one of the show's first and most reliably prolific writers. Now, writing's a craft that is little credited, but absolutely essential to a TV show. Most of the time, Tom Juvik, as a teacher, put up with some school kids. But part of the time, he put up with grown-up kids of Almost Live, and he helped a fledgling show find its voice. Tom graduated from Peninsula High School. He served in the Vietnam War, and then he went through the UW's creative writing program. He taught for 35 years at both junior high and high school, and he's an award-winning short story writer as well. But beyond Almost Live, he wrote comedy for the Fox Late Show and a column for the Tacoma News Tribune. This is a guy you gotta meet. He's one of my favorite people, and you're about to meet him, Tom Jubik. Tom, you had a couple of go-arounds with Almost Life, but uh, initially you were like one of the first guys uh, to step off the Mayflower and be one of the first writers of this brand new show. Now, how, how did you hear about the gig and how did it come about? Well, I'd, I'd been at the time I'd been teaching with Jim Sharp at, at uh, one of the great comedy clubs, actually. Uh, we'd been performing together at hmm. Cedar Heights Junior High. Oh, yeah, Port Orchard, yeah. Washington. The Laugh Factory of Port Orchard. And we had our own comedy club there. Mm-hmm. It was called the Ninth Grade Social Studies in English. And, and we were team teaching. And he basically was my warm-up guy. I was kind of the, you were the you know, the, the, op- the you yeah, were the I was main, kind of the main, main comedy. Uh, Jim yeah, mostly worked yeah. the lounge, didn't he, there at the... He, he was yeah. kind of a lounge for lizard. People, and, for people who don't know, Jim Sharp was the essentially the the initial head writer for the new right. Almost Live show, and he was a close buddy of uh, Ross Schaefer's. That's yeah, that's yeah, how yeah. that happened. And then Jim went on later to become a producer for many other kind of comedy shows and, and eventually made his way to be vice president uh, of programming, I believe, at Comedy Central. So he's had a long... Uh, 
career. But you initially, what did he say? Did he did he pitch you on this idea, uh, or do you remember how it came about? Yeah, Jim Jim knew that I I was writing short stories mm-hmm. and. And uh, I had a, a degree in creative writing, and I, I had some publications going. And How short were those stories? <laughs> some of them were very short. But some of them went on and on and on forever. And, uh, and, and uh, basically, I was writing for obscure literary magazines. Uh, and, and I have like a million stories in publication really? somewhere. But huh. Yeah, I made about 50 cents doing it. Yeah. And, uh, under your name? Jim knew that I was... Huh? These are under your name. I mean, if we dug around on yeah. the internet, we could find some of these stories. Yeah, uh, yeah, you could you could hunt around on there and and uh, yeah, just Tom Zwick. I'm going to do that as soon as we wrap this up. You might want to look on the dark web, see if you can find my social security number mm-hmm. and bank. Passwords. That's already been accomplished. Oh, yeah. Yes, it's been called the wild west of the internet because operating in the shadows are extremists, criminals, and trolls. So he's, he said to you, hey, they're doing this new show over on this TV station, King TV, and and yeah. they don't know what they're doing, and we need some writers. They didn't know any writers, and and and, they, and Jim knew that was kind of funny, and I could come up with stuff, and and so uh, he and Ross kind of wrote me in, and I liked Ross. Uh, when I met him, I just thought he was just, he had a lot of charisma, and he was the kind of person mm-hmm. that appealed, would have appealed to a, a lot of different audiences, and and he was kind of a natural, he's a kind of a guy who can make it comfortable. Yeah. Had a good sense of humor. And I went, wow, the show sounds good. This will be a lot of fun. Women want romance. They'd want romance, but we have to give that to them in simple ways. Just little, little post-it notes around the house. <laughs> little things. I love you. You're beautiful. Whose cowboy boots are these? <laughs> we started having meetings on Dexter Avenue at King TV. Mm-hmm. And, and there were, I think we started out with three, four people in a room and and uh it, every week that i went in there you know I, I after school was out once a week i'd head over to king five and uh i'd catch the ferry and drive across town and and they t- usually have the writers meetings uh production meetings around three thirty or so for i don't know maybe they were accommodating me but all, i think almost all of the the guys that ended up writing for the show started out as freelancers as did i uh, i was n- not on the staff at all until comedy central we did the 65 shows for comedy central years ago now, did you think in terms at that point did you think in terms of just jokes one-liners that kind of stuff or did you were you did you begin actually writing full sketches i i uh, i did a little bit of both and uh i probably had better luck with the monologue than the sketches which seemed kind of strange to me because as a short story writer right. i should be able to write sketches uh the thing that I noticed as time went on and the room got bigger and bigger and more and more freelancers came in and most of the guys that came in and most, and most of them were male were also writing things that they could appear in. And uh, I think Jim Sharp and I were, you know, I know Jim had his eyes on writing and producing and, and having productions and I was happy to write. Yeah. So mainly I was coming in going, I'm going to write for Ross. I'm going to write some sketches for the show. But I think a lot of the guys that came in and started working early on were like, I think I'll write some sketches and maybe I'll get to be in them. And I didn't think much about screen time like a lot of the folks did. Um, and well, there's just people that it's like, I'm a writer. Uh, I watched some Saturday Night Live documentaries that who are these guys? They interview these writers, people I never heard of. And they're the guys that just kind of make the jokes. And yeah. there's other people that are, I'm on the camera. 
Well, that, you know, that show never had a major budget of any kind. So, you know, you would have to be wearing a lot of hats. Roads and white lines and all kinds of stop signs. I stand right here where I'm at. Cause I wear my own kind of hat. Had you ever done any of that before? I, I uh, did a lot of improv when I was in elementary school. Uh, <laughs> It, it, right, uh, you know, that was my, always my audience was my classmates yeah. and I would have a little fun. And, and I remember the, I got my, I got a report card in the fourth grade where Mrs. Nelson said, I, you know, when I call on Tommy, I think, I think he knows the right answers, but he'd rather make everyone laugh. And so uh, that was really pretty much it. And uh, no, I didn't have any acting background except sometimes my brothers and I would put on little shows on our grandma's porch because our uncle, uh, Bill Friedman was our big hero. He was a Broadway producer, oh, really? production manager for Bob Fosse. Oh my and, gosh, wow. Uh, and we had all these posters from plays and musicals that he'd been involved with. And that was kind of like, it inspired us to think like, hey. What was one, of, what was one of the shows we he might've worked on? There were a ton of Bob Fosse, almost everything that Bob Fosse did. When, was he a writer, your your uncle? Was he a writer? He was. He, he was the production manager. Oh, he, he was. He got people together. He did the auditions. He got the show started. Wow, uh, that's cool. Anything that Fosse needed, and he ended up. Uncle Phil, Uncle Phil ended up playing himself in the movie All That Jazz. He played the production he manager did. in that movie. Oh. So you, you got to scope it out. He's really good in that. Whenever I miss my uncle, he's long gone, of course. I can just put that on there and go, hey, Uncle Phil, how are you doing? That is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. So let's back up a little bit since you already did that. What town did you grow up in and high school and all of that? The mean streets of Tacoma, Washington, I call home. And uh, and I, I probably the longest time I spent at any one school was at Horace Mann grade school. Mm -hmm. Horace Mann is considered the father of American public education. It was very popular there in the principal's office. The, the hack paddle got to know me pretty well there. Ah! Uh, <laughs> and then my, my folks split up and we, I, we ended up going to a lot of different schools for a while. And, and I ended up out in uh, Gig Harbor Peninsula High School. I graduated from there. Uh, go Seahawks. And uh, and then went on to the University of Washington. And what was your aim at the UW? Did you know you wanted to be a teacher, or did you have any idea where you were going? I, I was. I had started out. I thought I was going to be a psychologist, and then I thought a teacher. But mostly, uh, I gravitated toward uh, heavy drinking and womanizing. So I only lasted about a year at the U. You know, I, I always tell people when I went to college, I, I didn't get great grades in high school. But when I went to college, everything changed because when you go to college, you get to learn about things that are of interest to you. For example, as you're implying, that in college is where I learned the difference between a lager and an ale. It turns out <laughs> to be... Uh, uh, all about the fermentation process. Yeah. But I would have never learned that in high school. So I was excited yeah. to go to college too. Yeah. So, but, but you didn't just 
go to college, you got, didn't, wasn't there an interruption? There was, I, I was kind of asked to leave the U because I wasn't doing so well. They, and uh, that left me kind of open to the draft and mm-hmm. uh, military draft. Yeah, yeah. The military draft and left me open to Vietnam. So I actually, what I did, I went into the air force retreating office and I, I went like, Hey, you know, the army's just going to take me and get me shot. Uh, maybe you can do something for me. And they, they, we can they, get you shot too. Don't yeah, worry they, about that. Well, they, they went like, oh, well, look at your aptitude test and you have some college. We would never send you out there and make you into cannon fodder. We'll put you someplace where intelligent people, we put intelligent people, you'll put you behind a computer somewhere in Texas. And the first place, the first place they sent me was Vietnam. They, you know, they sent me to survival school first and radio operator school. Well, when they sent you to survival school, you must have known something was up. I did know that. Uh, they put me out in the woods for, uh, I think it was three days with a couple other guys. And they had other guys run around and pretend to kill us. While we, and we lived on mm-hmm. bugs and, and, and things like that. I'd still be out there except for one of the guys that was in my group. We had, I think there were four of us uh, running from these yahoos. And... Uh, uh, one of the guys was a navigator, and he got us to the exit point, uh, you know, in the three days that we needed to do that to graduate. Otherwise, you know, I'd still be out there running around, which probably might have been better because when after that I got to go to Vietnam, and, and the guys had real bullets and stuff in there. And That's what I heard. Yeah, they had real bullets. Yeah. I was pretty much a guy with a target. I was just a target there. I was just there for a target. So practice. what did you do in Vietnam? What was that like? Uh my job was to call in airstrikes for, uh, sorry, Vietnam. I was there to call in airstrikes for, I was stationed with an army unit. You know, I could have been drafted and been with these guys. Yeah. Uh, so and been out of there in two years. Wound up the same. Yeah. So I got a four-year hitch, thanks. And, uh, but basically we, I called in airstrikes and marked targets and encoded places and took body count reports and, damage reports from the pilots and that's where most of your comedy comes from obviously yeah that and and running around scared all the time because my second job there was at nightfall to just kind of wait for the rockets and mortars gunfire and stuff and then i I get to wake up and run to a bunker uh, and you know hold up there scared out of my mind well uh, thank you for, thank you tom for your service i mean i it uh and, and, and people who wouldn't remember the vietnam war was heavily protested meanwhile back in america so uh you must not have felt like a million bucks like i'm gonna come home and they're gonna throw a parade for me afterwards what was it like when you did come home? I was really disoriented, and and I was just um, I don't I don't know if I understood what had just happened to me. Yeah. And uh, and then to come home and have some people just kind of basically go like uh, the the stuff people say about you know being called baby killer and stuff that, that was real. And and there were grown ups that you know gave me a pat on the back before I left. But by the time I came back, which was after the Tet Offensive. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of adults and grown-ups that have been like that a boy before they were pretty negative toward me and yeah. uh, but fortunately about 30 days later the air force shipped me off somewhere so i was with a bunch of other soldiers again and well it must be some solace all these years later that that now a lot of those vietnam vets are lauded uh, by people in ways that they didn't deserve to be pilloried back back in the day so that's a pretty sobering uh, experience for sure. Now you're back in the U.S. You, you've, you're not 
you dropped out of college and that's why you got into into the service. Uh, what was your next steps once you got mustered out? I, I, and I got out as soon as I could. Uh, I, I applied to the U. They took me out of some form of pity, I'm sure. And, uh, and I went, uh, that's when I entered the writing program. And I was real lucky to work with a, a novelist named Jack Kitty. And he was a great guy. And he just kind of felt like I had something to say. I was older than the other students. So it was like, what's an old guy doing in my class? So a lot of my instructors were kind of interested in that and kind of took me under the wing. And I found that writing was really something I wanted to do and I enjoyed and it helped me to look into things and understand them better. But yeah. It was a little nutty on campus because the, the protests were still going on and, and I kind of wanted to end the war and bring, you know, my comrades home. I didn't, I couldn't see another single person dying over there. And Voices of those objecting to U.S. involvement in Vietnam were getting louder. In May of 1970, four students were killed by National Guard troops during a campus protest at Kent State University in Ohio. I do is I'm going to be one of you guys. I'm going to grow my hair long. I'm going to run around. And the first, uh, the first time I went to a protest, they were waving Viet, Viet Cong flags and North Vietnamese flags, and uh, you know, talking trash. Yeah, uh, you didn't about, want to go that direction. Yeah, either. so I didn't. Yeah, I I was out of that. I got more interested in civil rights then. Some gather around people wherever you roam. And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are a-changing who, who are your writing heroes? Who did you... And who do you still admire the most? I, I'm i pretty traditional. I, I was always kind of a Ernest Hemingway type of guy. Uh, my favorite novelist still have Scott Fitzgerald's mm -hmm. Great Gatsby. Uh, I, I, you hope, know, I hope, by the way, you've watched the uh, the Ken Burns series on Hemingway. I need to get on that. Oh, it's fantastic. I need to get on that. I haven't. I was on vacation when that was going on. Yeah. So I was just now, you, partying with my grandkids. It's a must and like boogers on me. All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. We've been thinking about Hemingway for literally decades. You have someone who is often considered the greatest American novelist and has an outsized life. It's hard to think of a subject that's more iconic than Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, I, I would like have wa rather watch that than have my my grandson wipe boogers on me. Yeah, as he did for like a full week. Maybe if I you came up covered with boogers. Yeah. Well, if you do it right, maybe you can have both experiences at the same. I could. <laughs> I could. <laughs> that would be good. So, so you, uh, so then you graduate from the UW, obviously with a degree in education, I assume, and you're you become yeah. a you immediately become a teacher, and where, where did you go? And my first, well, I did student teaching in, in Shoreline, up uh, north of Seattle, and then I ended up at Cedar Heights in Port Orchard. I had no idea I'd end up on the other side of the water. Uh, I wanted to teach in the Seattle area, be around the big city and mm -hmm. all of that. Uh, but uh, it was a great, it was real fortunate. I love being in the small town, uh, just kind of, 
I, I could afford to live here on a teacher's salary. Right. If, I was, right. if I was still in Seattle, I'd be living in a shotgun shack yeah. instead of this wonderful mansion that I'm in yes. uh, on the banks of Manchester. I look across the water at those fools over there in Seattle and I yeah. go like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. You, you're in a shotgun You've shack. been vindicated for I'm sure. I'm here on the hill. Yeah, it's great. Then you be then you begin writing for this fledgling show almost live. As you said, you had written short stories and done a lot of writing, but this is such a different discipline. Did you did you think, well, maybe I'm overreaching a little bit, but what the heck? Let, let's give it a shot and see what happens. I loved it because it was a lot of fun. I got to be around other people that had some talent people that were really funny and interesting. You know, we started bringing on John Keister. Mm -hmm. We got, we got you, Pat. Uh, Going downhill quick. And, uh, and all kinds of people, Joe, Joe Guppy, Bill Nye, a lot of the guys that, that pioneered, did a lot of writing for the show, started appearing on screen. And it was just exhilarating to be around him and to see the show and to just be part of it, even though, you know, I didn't always get something on the show. And even though I wasn't on camera, it was a lot of fun and, and kind of a, a thing I was doing for me. But but it was just fun to be part of the show, too. Well, did, and, uh, did you become something of a of a hero or if not a legend uh, uh, to your students? Well, you know, uh, no, not I don't, were they I don't aware? Were they aware was, that you were doing this? Not until I we did the Comedy Central version of the show in the early nineties, many many yeah. years later. Mm -hmm. And then I by then I you know I got to be a staff writer on there, right? And I got to be on camera because we were making so much stuff. Sure were. That yeah. They it was like we need guys, you know. And I got to and I really enjoyed that. I felt like I could really do something on the screen besides write. So I got to. I got, and that's when they knew they'd turn on the TV and there I was. And yeah. I had former students away at college that would call me and, and email. And, I saw you on TV. I was in my college dorm and that was a lot of fun. And, um, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah I think it, it would was, be great. It, it would be a lot of fun. A short interruption here. Apropos of nothing while Googling Tom Jubik, I found a obscure band on YouTube called the almost. And so, in a bit of serendipity, here is the almost live. If the almost had any albums, I would own them. One of the characters I used to do semi regularly was uh, this uh, fake talk radio host that was uh, the host of the kids show and the character's name was uncle buzz and he was slovenly he had greasy hair he smoked he hadn't shaved in a few days and so i did this i would do this bit and then i would take phone calls from kids and the phone calls <laughs> would be me with my voice sped up right. uh but i uh, when we started doing that comedy central season I realized I was out of gas. I had no jokes. I couldn't think of anything. I was absolutely on E. And thank God they hired you to come riding in to the rescue. You wrote a lot of things for the show, but you also wrote a bunch of great bits for the character Uncle Buzz, things for him to say and do. And uh, you saved the day for me, for one. I remember that very well. I think you were doing fine, buddy. You were you were rocking and rolling, and 
and I, I don't want to say that. I think Uncle Buzz, I think there's a side of you that is Uncle Buzz. Mm, could be. Look, let's get right to it, shall we? Let's take our first phone call. Hi, you're on the air with Uncle Buzz. Hi, Uncle Buzz. I'm a big fan. Oh, yeah? Is and that... a long-time listener. I've only been on for about 30 seconds. Well, I, I've been listening since then. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Can, can you remember where you were during the big Seattle earthquake? Look, I can't remember that at all. Not a bit of uh, it. No way. Well, wh where were you when Mount St. Helens erupted? Like I said, I'm not good at remembering stuff. What about but... when you first heard they were going to sell Coors in Washington State? I was with a friend. I was in his apartment at Fremont. I'll never forget that. But you were perfect to be the writer for that because you, you, you worked with kids all the time. You taught them. So, <laughs> so you, had, you had that point of view, which was immensely important yeah hi uh my hi. name's todd yeah. and i'm in the eighth grade great uh, i was out on the playground today and this kid started calling me names and making fun of me in front of my other friends uh-huh do you think i should pound him i don't think you should pound people uh -huh. when you're in the eighth grade you've yeah. got to get along with other eighth graders no no i'm an eighth grader he's just a third grader oh you should pound him oh thank you yeah. yeah. it did have an appeal to kids I, I still hear from now adults who said yeah i used to sneak into the room when my parents had gone to bed and watch almost live. And they, they were like, you know, in the fourth grade or something <laughs> like that. Uh, it was kind of like a badge of honor for them to sneak and watch something that they weren't supposed to be watching at that time of night. I like it. It was really, like really it. fun time. Back to uh, line three now. You're on the air with Uncle Buck. Uh, hi, can I get your opinion? Yeah, you got a weird voice. Oh, okay, thanks. You're welcome. So um, what what are some of the the things that you remember most about the show what are any stories that you can share with us about uh, crazy experiences or tedious experiences for that matter you know i i, I think uh it was just i i i like being with the show because in the you know my job was mainly to write monologue right, and i'd written right. monologue for ross early on and for and, the comedy, and, we, and for the Comedy Central show, since it was broadcast, um, it wasn't you couldn't be as topical uh, because we didn't know when that show would air. It couldn't be like the week's that week's news. It had to be more uh, generic and yet still seem of the moment. Uh, that was a tough right. task. How did you how did you approach it? Well, you know, it I, I had to be a little bit of a, a chameleon in a way because not only was you're right about it. it was a different kind of atmosphere uh plus you're writing monologues of, for john keister by now not not ross a different point of view yeah writing for john keister was a lot of fun but it took a while for me to kind of learn what is it that john does how does he do it mm -hmm. and john is is more you know he's a, he's a hipster kind of and he likes to do things that are smart and 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 he likes to create something that's different and i had to learn how to do that and I'm not sure at first John was a believer in me. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd worked on the late show at Fox and done a lot of monologue and written at a national level. And that's why I was brought in. But I'm not sure John believed in me right away. And it took me a while to learn how to adapt to that. And so I think that's one of the things that I brought to the show was like I was used to writing. For people. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Welcome to the show. My, my, my. Here we are in Seattle. We had such an interesting week in Seattle. We had our little. Did everybody here enjoy the little joke summer that we had this week? It was really fun. Everybody's so depressed. You know, rain, mudslides. Everybody's depressed. And then suddenly, 70 degrees, and everybody ran outside in their shorts. And then rain. They just rain, mudslides again. It's sort of like. 
God, you know, just had a little fun with us. He had a little, he's just, he's a funny guy. He's just playing a little trick on us. Like, want some candy? And he's taking it away. So. God had to figure out yeah. and get inside John's head. Yeah. And maybe, you know, and, and just kind of learn uh, also how to work with a new group of writers. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I was fortunate there because we had just a wonderful writers group. I'd, we'd all write individually in the morning. Afternoon, we'd meet with John. Uh, and we'd go over our jokes and our ideas for sketches. And we had Bob Nelson in that room. Uh, we had uh, Ed Wyant. We had right, uh, right. Uh, Nancy Guppy. Had, uh, Tracy, Tracy Conway. Uh, they were just such a talented group uh, and very, very nice people to work with. Yeah. And every once in a while, Bill Nye would pop in. And, uh, and, and so it was just a lot of fun uh, to work with them. Yeah. And we learned to piggyback off each other and build off each other's stuff. And, and we'd take an idea that maybe was just a beginning idea for somebody. And, and you'd write it, come in with a sketch. And pretty soon everybody's like, hey, and then we could do this. And then we could do that. And pretty soon we'd, we'd have a full-fledged sketch going. And uh, pretty soon we'd have a bunch of pretty good jokes. You know, I'd bring in like 100 jokes. And I would maybe get three in there in the monologue uh, on a good day. Three? Uh, three out of we all 100? Had to wow. Write a lot of stuff. Yeah. Well, if they if they did well, you if, know, it's, if they only took three of my one hundred jokes, yeah. I'd walk. I'd say, I'm, "I'm out of here. See you later." Yeah. These are great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to have a, you have to have a thick skin. To, like a rhino, right? Comedy. You go in a room and you think you got a funny joke, and uh, you and then do you remember? Kinda, do you remember one or two of the jokes that you were proudest of? Can you still remember any of them? <laughs> I I cannot I cannot remember a joke neither save my life neither can I and yeah. I can come up with them and I can write them and I can make up stuff when you and I are talking I I can't even tell a traditional joke you know that you know a million guys that go like oh yeah you know a, a priest and a rabbi and yeah, horse yeah, walking yeah, into a bar yeah. you know I, I cannot I'm, remember I'm just a joke. like you I cannot you could put me on the spot and say tell me a joke and I'll I, I really think that would be like boy uh, yeah can like, I have an hour God, to think know. about it yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we kind of I remember the sketches better though. Uh, well, what sketches, sketches? What sketches do you recall? I I remember we did a John Keister loved to do the training films. I think you were involved yeah, yeah, yeah. in some of those yeah. too. And uh, he came up with a lot of the initial stuff and probably wrote most of it. And we all kind of pitched in and piggyback and threw it in there. So pretty soon we had a pretty nice thing going. And the idea of the you know we're all in an office. And uh, so we didn't have to go on some big location or anything. We'd do a lot of it right there. And yeah. and uh, Bill Staten played the office nerd. And we were all going to go to lunch, but we we're going to ditch Bill. How do you ditch the office nerd? He catches you going out to lunch. We're all like, oh, no, we're not going to lunch. And we like, and then we'd sneak out. It was great. Almost Live Training Films presents Going to Lunch at the Office. Part one, getting started. The leader starts the process. It's almost time for lunch. Hey, you guys going to lunch? Part two, ditch the doofus. And then we ended up uh, at a restaurant having lunch. And, and that was a lot of fun, too, because we got some free food. <laughs> well, I'm not paying more than two bucks per carrot. I don't care what they carry. Mine was Campbell. Uh, Bill, I covered you last week, remember? Well, and, and so you got the rest, that, right? should be it. that should be good. That's, that's good. That's We're 40 good. bucks short. Uh, and, and then, at that point, uh, what was really fun was well, people started doing a lot of improv. 
uh, and you know, most of these guys were trained actors and stuff, and I was just some goofball that could come up with things. And so that part was fun too, because we got to be inventive. I had dinner here before, the lasagna is great. Great, but I don't want that much, you want to split it? Yeah, I'd okay, like great. to. And is there salad with that? Uh-huh, but you know, maybe we should get a, a side salad. A side salad, okay, but no dressing on the salad, on the side. That's fine. Okay, yeah, great, that'd that be great. Good. Okay, perfect, good. What do you have? I, I just had a blast on that, I still love that. It was a really Even magical time. my sketch. You, was, you said that you, um, post almost live you went to work on the fox late show that, that ross schaefer inherited or started um did you move to la for a period of time or did you work remotely i i i moved there i ditched my job you did uh oh, they, okay. they gave me a leave of absence it was uh, uh middle of the spring or something and school was almost over and my kids were bored anyway and uh, so they could bring in anybody. They probably didn't even know I was gone. The sub was probably nicer to them. But uh, uh, I, I was allowed to take a leave of absence. Uh, they encouraged, it was great. I had a great contract and good people that I worked with at the schools and they cool. encouraged me to try something. You and my wife was nice. She kept the kids at home. Fox sent me a plane ticket. I had about a week to get ready. I went down to Barnes and Noble. I bought, you know, I used to just kind of wing it. It's like, oh, just it's comedy. I think I'll write this. I realized this is serious business and a big chance for me. I bought three books on comedy writing and I read them, highlighted, read them even on the plane down there. I was reading, highlighting. And I had those three books and and they were like the Bible to me. And Sid Caesar said a joke is a sentence with a curly cue. What is every story? It's made up of sentences. So if you go up and take each sentence and can tag and top each one with something, or maybe not each one, every third one, and then now you have a bit that's humorous overall, but you have jokes on the way to the big, to the big joke. And so I wrote there for three or four months, wrote a ton of monologue. It was real rewarding. You know, you'd write something in the morning, go over it in the afternoon, get hard at for writing stupid jokes, and then the show would be on that very night, and you got to hear you got to see Ross get on the stage and, and you'd get to see your, your, your stuff come alive because we had a live audience there. From Hollywood, it's The Late Show starring Ross Schaefer. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to tell now, as you folks at, at home can probably tell, we got our applause light fixed. Uh, and then, of course, you had a lot of celebrity types strolling in to do the show, so... That's kind of cool we, and pretty yeah, heady stuff for a young guy. Nothing better than hanging out in the green room with Zsa Zsa Gabor. <laughs> Darling, what a lovely outfit you're wearing. You must give me the name of your dressmaker. You know, we had some nice people come on there downtown. Julie Brown, I remember, came on a couple of times. A lot of fun. Okay, we have music coming your way from Michael Mechanics and Phil Collins. A sort of Genesis tie in there. Mike Weatherford, of course, was in Genesis. Phil Collins was in Genesis. In fact, they're both still in Genesis. And... <laughs> Here's their solo projects coming your way. Oh, I just died. That Fox Late Night show got frozen out. The word was out that uh, they were going to try to just bring an end to it. If Jaja so, ja wants to be on The Tonight Show, she cannot do the Fox Late right. Show and, and so on. Yeah. yeah. And, and I don't think that yeah. that happens as much anymore, but in those days, it certainly yeah. did. So that was a disadvantage yeah. right, right out of the gate for sure. And gradually it kind of wore us down a little bit uh we started running out of guests and somebody that ran the show said we're losing some ratings and they they began to show turn the show into kind of a reality thing so we'd lead off with a, a bunch of jokes uh and then pretty soon ross would be sitting at a table with somebody that was a serial killer or uh, was married to his 15 year old cousin and and it was 
a strange, strange yeah. thing to see. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon we had four writer and segment producers. You know, the, the amount of comedy we're doing just kind of like pretty soon instead of each of us having four or five jokes in the monologue, uh, there would only be yeah. four or five jokes. Unless you were able to come up with some killer, hilarious serial killer jokes. Serial, of course. serial killer jokes. Killer serial killer jokes. And I remember the late show would do a lot of reunion shows, like bringing the cast together from Batman or Gilligan's Island. The ships are ground on the shore of this uncharted desert isle with Gilligan, the skipper too, the millionaire and his wife, the movie star, the professor and Mary and here on Gilligan's Island. Uh, this is our Gilligan's Island reunion, and our first guest, of course, played the title role on Gilligan's Island. You had to take a tremendous beating during that series. I was really lucky. Physically, I never got hurt. You never got hurt? No, I came close a few times, but I never did. So the re- everybody was, uh, about a month after I got there, everybody was already looking for their next job. And so that was an important thing I learned was like, when you're on a job, you're already looking for your next one because yeah. most TV shows are are not, you know, they don't go on for That's right. 20 seasons. And you, you have know. to know that going into it. You, yeah. you just, yeah. and it's, but it's a hard lesson to learn. When you were there for a while, did you already think, well, I know I'm going to go back and to being a teacher again, or was there part of you that said, this is fun. I want to continue living here and working. That's great. A great question because that uh, every night uh, after about a month, I, I, I had to start weighing that argument out and, and debating it with myself. And I went around and looked at the schools in the area, realized that even though I was making pretty good money in LA, there's never enough money. Uh, I, and I thought about the whole thing about you're always looking for a job. You're always kind of trying to network with people to try to get into a show i just at a certain point i went one i i can't deal with that insecurity two i i can't bring my kids down here and put them in a decent school i'll never afford a a private school and i don't i don't think we'd have a good life down here together yeah it's funny you'd say that i I love my teaching job so why not yeah i I had that same kind of crucible moment where i went to la and i just same kind of thoughts i said do i i don't want to move my kids down here Maybe that was right. prejudicial and an assumption that that wasn't true, but it felt right to me at the time, mm-hmm. and I knew I didn't want to didn't want to go there. No regrets about that. So, what do you do? What are you up to these days, Tom? Are you still teaching? Uh, actually, I do some things uh, with school accreditation. I'm kind of a consultant, and I get to go around and visit schools, and you know, they tell it. I look at their paperwork, and they tell us what they're trying to do, and then we go in there and tell them they're messing up big time, better shape up. Actually, no, it's a lot of fun. We go in the schools, we talk to kids, we talk to teachers. Uh, we look at the documents, talk to the administrators and go, here's what you're doing a great job on. And here's some things to work on. So it's a lot of fun. And I do a little bit of tinkering with my own writing, you know, and, and mostly I just kind of hang out and, and enjoy life a little bit. It's amazing how you just, there's always something to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I enjoy my family a lot. So it's a good job and I'm still in the town where I teach. So I'm, I'm pretty happy here. I, 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 just know I know this must've happened to you every day. Perhaps my brother was a longtime teacher and, and he's always hearing or bumping into former students 
or getting a phone call from them or an email and they're just yeah. thanking yeah. him for the influence that he had on them and their lives. And sometimes he's, he'll say, gee, I don't even remember this kid for sure. But, <laughs> yeah. but uh, it, 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 it's edifying to know that you really have impacted so many lives and maybe in a way you wouldn't have been able to do if you'd stayed down in LA and tried to be a writer. Yeah, that part is kind of a blast. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, it is kind of fun to get to know people again after they've grown up and they bring their kids up to you or they go like, hey, uh, I made it through rehab, you know, yeah, you didn't think yeah, I was going to. Yeah. And, you know, there's still some people that remember I did some TV work. And, and but most of them, you know, it's like, uh, most of them think I was on Saturday Night Live. They had me confused with Belushi well, or Why something. disabuse them of that? Yeah, I, I go like, yeah, it was great. I used to hand it, you know, it was great Tina Fey and I were just talking the other night about that. <laughs> it's Saturday Night Live with Tom Jovic, musical guest, The Councils. But it's funny because there was a thing, uh, uh, a little bit I did, uh, we, we did a thing where people personality it was it was a bit about personalities and the cars they drive and i got to be a minivan driver and i had a line and i wore a stupid you know mickey mouse hat and mickey mouse shirt and my my line in in this was uh, the joke was i all i said was i drive a minivan and uh, for years and years even now whenever i go somewhere in town people pop out of nowhere and the, and they walk up to me and they look at me a foot away. Well, now with their masks on six feet away and, and they go, I drive a minivan. Isn't that and, right? and they think it's so funny. Yeah. And, I never and heard I, that I, before. I, I, no, it, it's crazy. And I'm going like, my, I, I don't know. I maybe, you know, John Keister and Pat Cashman, everybody in Seattle knows you. Do, do people walk up to you and, and, and throw lines at you that you had on TV? Never heard the minivan one. That's for sure. No, you are not the minivan. That's my line, man. You can't yeah, take okay. it. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you get all the Uncle Buzz stuff. It okay. is great. And the show's been off the air for so long now. It, that's what still amazes you is that people yep. do have a memory of it. They, you know, I've, I have people walking up to me that I swear are, have just left a, an assisted care place to go outside and get some air. And they say, I used to watch you when I was a kid on Almost Live. <laughs> that, <laughs> that'll wake you up. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Tom, yeah. thank you. Thank you. It was really fun talking with you. And yeah, thanks Great for talking thanks. to you, Pat. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'd love to go to lunch with you. Split the tab or you're, you're buying or, you know, it's, we'll, we'll figure that out, okay? I'm going to try to find a third party that will pick it up. I hope so. <laughs> Take care, Pat. The Almost Live, Still Alive podcast. Produced and edited by Morris Patrick Cashman. Technical director is Dave Tavers. And special gratitude to the legendary Kenneth George Buford McCaw. Almost Live's Chief Archivist. And thanks also to King TV Seattle. This program was made possible in part by the 12th century nun and mystic Hildegard von Bingen, inventor of spoken language. And by Emil Berliner, creator of the microphone. And I'm your announcer, that kid from Sluggy, Chris Cashman.